fortune, smile and fate I haven't seen you much of late I need you now, I cannot wait But when I look, you're not around Never mind what we do The night's still good for a gram or two I'll be drinking late with you Until the morning comes around Welcome to You Got Us Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. And today on Gals Open, we got a special guest, Oren McIntyre. Now, now I practice pronunciation. Did I do that correctly? You got it, man. Thanks for having me. Fantastic and excellent. Uh, so I am inviting you on the podcast because uh, you're probably my number one follow on Twitter. You have a lot of uh, very astute observations. I know I know you, you don't take credit for any of these things. You, you say that uh, you're just like distilling other information, but uh, I think you have an interesting framing of the world that we're engaging in and uh, interesting observations to make about current events, current news cycles. And you tend to take a step back from the actual news cycle to talk about the underlying motivations, what's actually happening without getting too caught up in uh, tribalism on any particular issue. No, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, there's uh, I mean, there it's really difficult, especially with Twitter. You know, you're driven by news cycles all the time and everyone wants to kind of have that immediate reaction. And of course, I'm like anybody else. I, I'm, I'm subject to that as well. But one of the things that I try to remember when we're just looking at what's going on with the news today and everything is that this exists in some kind in a continuity. You know, there's a reason that we're being shown these things. There's a reason that we're talking about the things we're talking about. And so, yeah, I just try to pull back a little bit and try, try to make sure that there's context and that kind of thing. Why, why are we addressing the issues we're addressing today? Why is this what the media wants to focus on? That kind of thing. Yeah, I, I just saw a tweet. Uh, just uh, maybe maybe it was today where someone was talking about Iraq. Iraq was a huge deal back in you know the 2000s. And it's in the same state of disarray today. The only difference is that certain individuals want us to focus on Iraq at that time frame. And right now, it's not politically expedient. It's not like there's a different situation in the country between the two situations. It's whatever they want us to focus on at that time. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is think about uh, the summer of love, right? Leading up to the the Trump election, the Trump Biden election. I mean, there was a every week um, one or or two um, you know assaults or or killings or serious wounding of. A person of color in police custody, right? This is happening all the time uh, for, for for months on end, and then they just vanished, right? We don't see anything of that today. When's the last time you saw an outrage? Is BLM still marching somewhere? Did did all of that violence against people of color magically disappear? What, what happened, right? Oh, oh, suddenly that narrative was not useful, and then magically all that stuff just dropped out of the headlines. And so, one thing I've found very interesting in my time on this earth, I guess, is. Uh, uh, the realization that people have are coming to the same issues with not maybe genuine motivations. Uh, for example, I'll, I'll give an example from college. Uh, I was a president of a pro-life group and I would set up these booths to show pictures of abortion. You know, this is an abortion at 10 weeks. This is 20 weeks. This is what this, these things are. It was an informational booth. And this lady had, it was in the front of this commons that you'd walk into where all the booths would be set up. And some girl from some other club was sitting in a booth next to me and she started arguing with me and she started telling me about her eptopic pregnancy and her abortion or whatever and I'm trying to sit here and explain principles of triage to her and which didn't seem to go anywhere and I leave 
and my vice president takes over the booth and later he he talks to me and she's he's like you know she told me she was just lying that that she was just making that up uh when she's interacting with you and it's like I'm being introduced to this world in which people will just boldface tell lies. They don't care about principles. It's it's just about winning some sort of argument. And it, it was a kind of a weird realization for me. There, you know, there's things before that that's happened as well, but it just kind of struck me particularly something bad. Yeah, I mean, it's it can be very difficult when people wade into especially those deeper waters that a lot of people will you know approach these things very dishonestly. And really, it's it's as much from your side as the others as well. I think a big thing for a lot of people from the right is discovering how many of the people who are supposed to be on their side, you know, the GOP, the, the conservative establishment actually isn't really interested in any of the things they're interested in they they aren't really looking to to move the ball on any of the issues that really matter to their voters they're simply there to get tax cuts and otherwise kind of hold the line uh, on other issues and so i think that uh, you, there there needs to be a wider understanding of kind of the the level that pol- everyone knows politicians are dirty right like everyone says that but then they think about like their politician and they think, well, but he's a good guy, right? For some reason, we have a hard time associating that general principle of like, well, politicians are liars and scumbags to like the people who are actually supposed to represent us as well, understanding they're also part of that system. So I think it's generally very difficult for many Americans to engage with kind of the level of dishonesty that you get kind of all over the place when it comes to the political landscape. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was, uh, I'm was i a friend of Bob Enyard. He was a Denver Bible uh, pastor who had a radio show. But very early in the 2000s, he pointed out, yeah, President Bush is not pro-life. And in South Dakota, we had referred Law 6, which was going to ban all abortion statewide. And the press asked him to weigh in on it. And he said, oh, I'm against this law because there's no no exceptions for rape and incest. But And so the, the, the law barely failed. It didn't, it didn't pass uh, the ban on abortion. But two years later, they tried referred law eight, which did have those exceptions. But then it's just crickets from the GOP establishment, especially Bush. He, he didn't care about the issues. And of, of course, I was aware of this in his presidency. I never voted for the man. Um, but uh, it, it was all politics to him. He didn't actually care about abortion. This was just an excuse not to support a particular policy that he didn't support anyways. Yeah, I mean, again, you look at something like uh, immigration with the GOP, right? It's something that all of their voters have been pushing out on for many years. They've made very clear what their preference is. And yet every year, even with the toughest talk that we get, we never really get any significant changes. The ball never gets moved. Every time there's an option to do immigration or something else, we always do the something else, right? And there's always an excuse why it can't get done. We can put billion tens of billions of dollars in ukraine but we can't find five billion dollars for a border wall right and it's and the same thing again with the social issues so much of the right has been told that these issues are losers you can never have any victories on these they're not going anywhere it's never worth fighting this stuff just again just go talk about you know the rights of corporations or something instead ignore all this stuff it's it's all losing issues and then we look at what's going on today and we see that actually like parental rights the ability to push back against things like things like critical race theory and gender indoctrination of children actually has a lot of support and actually does animate people in a very dynamic way and what do we see 
most a lot of the Republican establishment kicking and screaming the whole time, right? They don't want to touch this stuff, even though it's very obviously a very powerful issue that would animate their base. Right. Uh, they're they're in power. They're where they want to be. And so they have no motive to actually change the system. If they solve abortion, there's there's no abortion votes for them anymore. And so I, I guess today's podcast, we're going to talk about tools in which we can frame the world and understand the world around us. And I think you provide some pretty good reoccurring ones in your Twitter feed in which you pull out news stories or things that happen and then you reinforce principles so that people could identify patterns and put together that these principles work in in uh, in general so that they could start also identifying these patterns as these patterns occur and so i'm going to share my screen and it's going to be let's let's make sure i got uh, one of these tweets pulled up here um this is uh one of the common talking points is clown world as a uh, uniform Clown world as uniform, and the tweet that you are replying to is about an Air Force drag show at Langley, and uh, you'll you'll see these things. There was a video that was going around about it was a military video, training video for the Navy, which was talking about gender pronouns. So here's the gender pronouns we use, and it's like normal type of stuff that military will see in uh, annual trainings, for example. And so what is this concept clown world as uniform? Yeah, so I wrote a piece about this that you're referencing where the we, we saw a number of different woke training exercises from the military. And I've known that this is coming down the pipeline for years. I have a number of friends in the military and they've been telling me, hey, this stuff is getting more and more prevalent. This, this is occurring more and more. Um, but, but it's really been in the news here, you know, in the, in the last few months. And so I wrote this piece and I was kind of pulling, uh, something for, from like a, almost a decade, over a decade ago at this point, which is one, one of the guys I like to reference a lot is Curtis Yarvin. He wrote under Minchus Mulbug a long time ago, but he, he had this quote about how nonsense is a really effective uniform. And his point was like, we look at ridiculous things that the left is doing and we think this is crazy. This is absurd. They've lost their minds. This is, you know, they let people love to call this like a mental illness of some kind. But his point was actually nonsense is a really effective organizing principle, because if you can get people to believe in nonsense as something that's clearly false and they and get them to proudly project that then what you have is like is like a flag it's like a uniform it's something that everyone can see and it shows that you are so loyal to the ideology so loyal to the regime that you would parrot back things that are obviously false just to demonstrate your willingness to kind of be uh, a member of that team. And so my point was just kind of extending this to our military, right? We have this scenario where the where we have many of these military programs who are training uh, our our recruits and our troops in this ideology and making sure that they understand that this is the behavior that is expected of them, right? It's it's it, all militaries are indoctrinating, but our military is in particular indoctrinating our troops with an ideology that most of middle America hates and that hates most of middle America. And why would you do that, right? Why would you train your armed forces in an ideology that is specifically rejected by a large amount of kind of that flyover America, that red state America, why would you indoctrinate them in that? Well, because it separates them from 
middle America. It lets them see those people as something else, something less, something different, and see themselves as part of a different team. And so in many ways, unfortunately, our current leaders are training our military to see themselves as set apart and different from kind of that heartland of America, to have different values a different uh, ideological structure. And so in that sense, this clown world that everyone is always talking about, oh, this is ridiculous. How can people believe this? How can people parade around in this? It's actually serving as a organizing principle to separate our armed forces and other parts of our uh, institutions away from the people they're supposed to serve. Yeah, I definitely see that. I also see it as there's a purging effort going on with that and with the vaccine, the mandatory vaccine and their crackdown on any religious exemption. And so it's it's a way to separate those troublemakers or the people that they don't see as loyal to whatever social goals that they have. And so th this is an interesting concept, clown world as uniform. Someone says something that's obviously really ridiculous, but it, it signals that they're part of the group, the collective. They're willing to say these things that are on their face ridiculous in order to show their affiliation almost kind of like a virtue signal if you will yeah no absolutely it's by by making sure that these people have to demonstrate loyalty in this way they purge like you said a large number of kind of uh, of more religious or right-leaning americans making sure those people who won't jump through those hoops are forced out of the service yeah so um, it's a good concept to keep in mind. The next concept I kind of want, oh, I guess, I guess one thing I want to talk about real quick is, uh, the Matt Walsh video where he, what is a woman? I'm sure you've seen that, right? Uh, I've, I've seen clips. I didn't watch the whole documentary, but I've certainly seen a number of the interviews that have circulated. Yeah. So I showed my kids this clip or not this clip, but the whole movie. And, uh, it was really interesting. Matt Walsh, he goes through great extents to show, the ideology of transitioning kids and the social effects and things like that, but he doesn't spend very much time on the motivation. The biggest time he spends on the motivation for this behavior is talking about pharma profits. And so there's a clip where he's interviewing like a school board filled with individuals and uh, they're all into this gender ideology and transitioning and stuff. And I'm sitting here thinking the only motivation that you really proposed through all this, there, there was, there was a little bit on, uh, Kenzie and uh, uh, pedophile origins of this, but the only real motivations that he proposed for society at large is um, some sort of pharma profits. I, I'm thinking these school board people, they're not getting paid off by big pharma. So what might be their motivation? Well, there's, there's a lot of them. And I think it's important to point out the material benefits like Matt Walsh did, right? Like I think following the money does point you to a number of things, but it's important for people to realize that it's not just corporations looking to maximize profit. Like one of the problems that many people on the right had is they assumed this kind of the myth that was told to them that the only thing that could possibly motivate a corporation or actions uh, like the larger scale was economics. And they didn't realize that actually there's kind of this total machine that moves people forward. Part, profits are part of it, but actually you have many other reasons that people signal in these directions. So like you pointed out, these people on the school board, they're not getting kickbacks. They're like, like uh, you know, no one from Pfizer's writing them a check, right? 
but they're still they still know they need to signal in this direction and there's a lot of reasons uh the one we see here you just brought the crackle brow uh, tweet i had done on this where they had that fake meat right and it's like who the, the crowd at a Cracker Barrel has no interest in fake meat. These are the, these are the opposite market for that. These are not people in California or New York. These are not the kind of people who had interest in that. These are the kind of people who want deep fried steaks, right? Like, like that's what Cracker Barrel serves, right? And why would they do this? Because there's a social signal involved, right? There's a, there's a virtue. You're signaling your willingness to move towards an agenda that is politically and socially popular, there's also the material incentives. There's things like ESG, which incentivize corporations to align with certain values so that they can be more attractive for, for funding. So there's there's definitely that, again, that material backing. But there's also the fact that there's a, there's a uh, hierarchy, right? Like there is a status applied to people who are willing to show, to signal that they are moving along with the with the social agenda and so whether you're a giant company or you're a school board member or you're just some teacher in a public school you know showing that you that you worship the same god that you have the same allegiance to the same power signals to the people around you that you're a good person and you should be selected to climb the ladder, right? You should be given more, more power and more control. And so that's why that that's always of interest to people along with the financial benefits. It's not completely separate, but it's not the only motivation. Yeah. So it's, it's real interesting that, uh, you know, I I'm coming from a Milton Freeman, uh, Rothbard type of background and uh, there, there is this myth that you point out that the market's going to drive these interactions. Well, is the market deplatforming Alex Jones? Is the market uh, removing all his uh, credit access? Is the market the market actually gives Christian movies a huge benefit? The Passion of the Christ. It's an R-rated movie, and it's in a different language. You know, it's it's like it's a dead language that no one speaks. Um, but it's like the top grossing R movie of all time uh, in the U.S. domestically, at least, and maybe like within the top three worldwide. But Hollywood didn't want to make that movie. Mel Gibson had to reach into his own pocket and then uh, they criticized for him for that, saying he wouldn't make money. And then when he made a ton of money, they criticized him as some sort of uh, glutton for just just a greedy person trying to make money. But they're not making these movies is the point. The, the signals are all there. They can make a lot of profit putting out this content that people want to see, but they're rejecting that. Why? Because they're probably, probably, as you're pointing out here, they are rejecting that, that market signal. They're rejecting the social aspects of it. They don't want to do something against the narrative that they actually want to push. Well, and a lot of these companies also know that while there might be a market for something, they are in a better case if they can control the market, if they can actually drive it. So by denying making certain things that the people actually want, they have better control of then delivering the content and the, the products that they want to produce. So they can, you know, even though something clearly isn't a failure, they can make it look like one so that they can produce the kind of things that they want. They can push the kind of things they want. Again, we, we think that this competition will eventually some you know, companies somewhere will realize that there's more advantage making the product people want than there isn't. But actually what we learn is there's actually more advantage on having a closely held monopoly 
on the market and controlling what people want than there is in actually delivering products people want, which is why so much of our uh, economy is driven by kind of these duopolies or very closely held large corporate uh, you know, uh, uh, holdings that really limit the number of choices, not increase the number of choices that people have in the marketplace. So in maybe a completely unconstrained marketplace, the ideas that we're talking about would work, right? But in a market that is very easy to quarter, especially with the controls that are available to corporations in places like the United States, it's actually better to be leveraging the market and controlling the market than it is responding to its actual demands. Right. So if, if you control the market, you control the social messaging. You could introduce things into uh, one example was homosexuality was normalized in, in the United States through shows like Will and Grace, introducing these likable characters that are on TV. And, you know, it, you got limited choices when you're watching TV. So you're consuming what's playing and then uh, you're consuming that propaganda. They're going to propagandize you to like that character and their features and normalize it. And even within uh, homosexual culture, they point to Will and Grace as one of those normalizing aspects in, in uh, the United States. I remember growing up where it was, it was still debated. It was still taboo. This, this, is, this is an actual serious debate that people were having. And then over, over the course of my life, you, you saw the social shifts. And uh, I, it's probably not you that points it out. Michael Mellis always points out it's typically comes down, it's, it's top-down directed. It comes from the courts. Uh, Texas versus Lawrence in, in homosexual marriage comes down from the courts, and then it becomes popularized at the local level. But they're top-down initiatives, and typically not grassroots. Yeah, no, definitely. The a lot of the you know the old adage, the one that a lot of people reference, is that uh, that uh, politics is downstream from culture. But as my friend, academic agent, likes to say, actually, culture is downstream from power. And so what you have a lot of times is whether it's the hard power of something like the courts in a in a in a decision that overrules all of these state, uh, you know, these state uh, initiatives that tried to, uh, you know, ban gay marriage in the state or or limit it. Um, or if you look at something like the media, the, so the soft uh, power of the media, in either case, you see that actually those things, the, that power, whether it be the soft power of, of, uh, of influence through entertainment or the hard power of law, is what actually drives public opinion. We have this myth that you, know, you, you control the, 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 you know, the, the people have the power and they control and they decide what the law is going to be. They determine what that thing's going to be. So public, the public is what actually drives uh, the power, but it's exactly the opposite. It is top down. Does the power, whether it be in the public sector in something like entertainment or in the uh, state where in something like the courts, it is that that eventually informs and trickles down the public attitudes in general. And so this is why you saw the big uh, public outcry against the overthrow of Roe versus Wade, because this is this is how their institutions become established from the top down. And if it's being over, it's, it's not like uh, overthrowing Roe versus Wade suddenly made abortion illegal across the country, uh, but it, it starts that cultural shift. This is one of their sacred institutions that they have to uh, protest that, and they have to become uh, animated over the Roe versus Wade decision, because that is the pinnacle of 
I'll say their religion. That's 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 their focus. That's how they control the culture. And so this top-down decentralization that will allow uh, states to do their own initiatives. They'll give people freedom of choice. That will allow states to compete on a state-by-state -state level, and that's not what they want. They want a, a hegemony. They want uh, total control over all aspects everywhere in the U.S. Well, and you saw the general panic, not just from the row, but then you saw them naming every other decision that could possibly fall, right? <laughs> like all these all these other ones that might come come next. And it became clear to many people that actually what we don't have is a vastly popular movement that grew from the ground up organically and forced change. What the what the left had was a very tenuous control. Uh, forced onto the populace from top-down, uh, uh, very poorly decided legal, um, uh, you know, decisions, but very poorly constructed legal decisions, and that if one of those could come apart, if they had lost control of one of the key institutions that had driven most of the social change, then the very thing that had been used to create that change could just as easily be used to undo it, because they didn't do most of the stuff the way it was supposed to be done through a collection of, you know, uh, of, of, of legislative changes or constitutional uh, amendments, but instead because it was all done through this body of activist judicial uh, uh, decisions, they could just as easily have a court undo those things because that's the only thing any of it rested on. Yeah, it is interesting that uh, one thing I did want to talk about was ho hollowing out religion and FDR really implemented the, this top-down control over religious institutions with the tax code. And uh, my dad's a lawyer, and so he gets pretty animated about this uh, 501c3 uh, tax exemption status and how it's been selectively enforced against individuals. I've been to churches in DCs. It's just it's not even it's not even a church service. It's just a political rant about whatever social issues that they think are that they don't open the Bible. There's no Bible involved in it. It's it's a political, feel good type of empowering type sermon that you sit through in a lot of these DC churches. Yeah, you have a lot of people talking about how we want to pull the uh, we want to pull the tax exempt status from any evangelical church in you know Alabama that might mention uh, you know any political topic for ten seconds. But absolutely, none of them are going to be willing to go into you know uh, predominantly black churches and talk about you know the fact that you know eighty percent or whatever they're talking about. It, you know, Hillary Clinton can walk into any of those churches and give a campaign stump speech from the pulpit, and no one's talking about their stand their their tax exempt status so yeah anytime the you know, the government has this kind of uh option they will always be able to manipulate it but that's the thing the one mistake that i think a lot of uh conservatives make is then they're like well but then we just have to eliminate that tool and i understand that decision well, like why they would say that because that tool is currently being used against them but the thing to remember is that those things will always exist in law those preferences will always exist you're never going to create a system where where uh, everything is equally applied as much as we would like that to be true that's just not human nature and that's not how societies work societies will always either either mildly or very you know uh, openly support and push certain agendas through their selection of public policy and application of the law that's just going to be the case and one of the things that we see like with the with the hollowing out of the religion is progressivism has been the preferred mode of basically our our uh, political structure 
for many decades now. It's been incentivized in every area and religion is one of many, right? Where, you know, uh, you're always seeing whether it be ta tax exempt status or, you know, pastors being invited to political uh, events or being included in, in corporate events, all kinds of other things. There's a big market for uh, for religious leaders who are willing to go along with this agenda and not only go along with it, but actually make it the center of their church, make it the center of their religion. And so that's why you see uh, you know this hollowing out because people want to signal to power. People want to be in line with power. And it's very clear power wants you to take the principles of your religion and turn them towards the principles of progressivism. Yeah, so that that's one of the things that you often repeat is say pro progressivism will hollow out your religion and wear its skin like a trophy. Now, I, I had my kids uh, uh, we, on the way to church every Sunday. We listen to audiobooks and things like that. And I had them listen to The Conquest of Mexico by H. Prescott. And it, this, this quote reminds me of a scene in which an Aztec prince uh, was uh, getting married intertribally to another tribe. And they send their daughter down. He kills the daughter, skins her, wears her skin, and then presents himself to the father that's that's the kind of imagery i'm seeing uh in this quote i'm not sure if that's where you got it or not but that's what that's what uh, flags in my mind uh progressivism will take a religion at for christianity it'll skin it and then wear its skin like a trophy i you kind of see this not only in this quote that i got pulled up in which there's a video i'll pull up the video without sound we're going to do it without sound but uh of this drag show that is at what looks like a Catholic church, um, probably DC, something like that. And then uh, also you see that in this whole student loan forgiveness issue that just came up. All I see in my timeline now is student loan forgiveness is the same as Christ's redemption payment at the cross. Uh, it's almost insane to, to, to say the least. Yeah, there's a really good meme uh, that goes around and it's uh, this guy, you know, who's just like this kind of like, uh, like awful uh, sly person. And he's like, I, you know, I don't believe in any of your religion, of course, but if you really <laughs> believed in your religion, then you would do all the things that I want politically, right? It turns out, you know, I discount your religion entirely and I hate you and I hate you for following it. But if you were really believe, believe in your religion, you would do all the things that I want you to do politically. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of victory for progressives in this because Christians want to be seen as supportive they want to be seen as caring they want to be seen as people who are helping the community they want to be seen as people who are taking care of others there's a lot of compassion in christianity these are all virtues that in a society is are very positive right they're they're very good for the healthier society they're one of the reasons that many christian societies came to be some of the most dominant ones in the world but at the same time they can be hijacked by people who are willing to separate the principles of those Christian principles from their founding, from their actual roots and their actual message. And that's what progressivism is in a lot of the ways. It's a Christian heresy, right? It's, it's taking some of the principles of Christianity, completely severing them from their grounding and instead uh, being using them to push something that is a awful, horrible, misshapen version of Christianity. And that's why I do the, the wear it like a skin suit, right? Because it's, it's a trophy, right? Progressivism has conquered 
Christianity. That's that's what they try to do when they're putting on these kind of shows, right? We've stripped everything. We've hollowed out everything in your religion that actually made it what it was. We have convinced you that the thing we're wearing is the actual religion. The skin suit is the actual religion. And now we're standing in your holy place and you'll worship us instead, right? And that that, that is a lot of what we see here is literally we see drag queens in you know on the altar here. So Right. So they, they, they weaponize religion. It's a tool to bludgeon you. Oh, if you were a Christian, you would do this. So if you're a Christian, you'd be nicer. You'd say these things. Uh, you would, you would do any of my political objectives that I really, really want. It's not about principle. It's about using something you care about and using it as a weapon against you, weaponizing your religion. And then once they conquer it, uh, parading it around as, uh, that Aztec imagery. And so that's interesting. Um, you respond to this. Let's pull up your your tweet in response to this uh, interesting video. You say, make mo no mistake, something is being worshipped here. And this is in reference to the video of the drag show that is in, looks like a Catholic cathedral, something like that. Yeah, again, like I said, there, there there's very obviously no there is no secular society, right? There is no such thing as a society that abandons religion. Humans are at their core religious uh, beings. And so they will worship something, you know, uh, but Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. And he was right. Like there is no escaping that human impulse to worship. Even when you look at things like the French revolution, where the whole point was to, uh, you know, to strangle the last uh, king with the guts of the last priest, they still, as soon as they, they have this revolution, what's the first thing they, they do? They create the goddess of reason and they install her in Notre Dame, right? Because there, there is no such thing as a completely irreligious human. And so uh, what, what happens here is, yes, you've pulled down, you know, the, the, the Christianity, you, you've, you've hollowed it out and you've, you've carved it out of its own place of worship. But it's not just going to be empty. That, that building's not going to just sit idle. Something else will fill that void. And what we're seeing is it is this religion of progressivism. It is, it is worshiping the, you know, uh, what we understand as kind of this, this human rights coalition, this coalition of people can do whatever they want and be whatever they want as long as it's actually this grotesque inversion of the truth. That, that's what's being worshipped here when we look at this. Yeah, me and my brother were talking about the Atheism Plus movement and how it devolved from what it originally strove to do. And then it turned into this feminist woke revolution. And uh, it it's it's almost sad for the individuals who consider themselves rationalists just engaged in all, all these, let's say, woke politics. It's like, is, is this really the rationalist movement? Uh, what struck me by uh, when I backpacked around Europe back in the early, uh, about 2006, is how many cathedrals and churches have been converted away from Christian places of worship and turned into bars and nightclubs. And so I, I do see this, especially in Europe, the hollowing out of religion, maybe not in quite in the same sense as this uh, story queen, drag hour in the church, uh, drag shows. Maybe not like that, but I, I do see that elsewhere. So the next thing, uh, I'm going to actually pull a fast one you know, on you. Um, oh, no. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> so uh, one, one of the topics that I, I forgot to mention that I would like to talk about is this real-time redefinition of words. 
Mm-hmm. And so I uh, you you saw it very interestingly and acutely, especially in in the whole Wuhan virus, COVID virus, in which Wikipedia for some time it's been changed back now, but they changed the definition of the Spanish flu to the flu of 1918 during the Trump presidency when Trump was trying to refer to COVID as the Wuhan flu, and so we see that with topics like uh, inflation or with the definition of womanhood real-time redefinitions and then this retconning by the mainstream media this retconning by everyone who is involved in this narrative shift oh no we we always believed it was like this you just didn't quite understand us before but now just listen to us now we got this definition and we're right we're the experts yeah i mean one of the things that everyone throws around now and totally understandably because we are there is orwellian right because it it conjures this image of uh you know the main character uh, you know his job is to rewrite headlines go back and rewrite the past so that you know uh the the knowledge of the of the present has changed and he who controls the past controls the future and he who controls the pe- present controls the past and so we see this so often now though they'll, they'll go back and change the definition of something like anti-vaxxer they literally will go into the dictionary and change it in real time so that it fits the political agenda of someone and so what you're losing is just all the faith in these core institutions and this is such a regular thing now that we we expect it like you can predict like okay they will go in and you will see in the next couple weeks them actively change the definition of this thing because it's it's inconvenient for them now right and so that's uh, but what we're seeing is that through force of repetition by updating and saying these things constantly you can totally warp the the populace's understanding of things in real time you don't even have to wait to go into the past and 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 uh, wait a generation for people to, like catch up with the new programming you can literally just have a blunt force uh, attempt to to repeat something so often in the present that eventually it just kind of gets absorbed in the public consciousness and so that's a, that's a technique that we see over and over again and the fact that they do it so often and so blatantly now means more people are waking up to that. It's less it's less often that I need to provide specific examples to people now because they remember, oh, I do remember when this was entirely different. I do remember when suddenly the storyline on this changed oh, there, but it's still just so forceful that and, and it happens so often that it get, it just rolls over people, right? They're just overwhelmed from this like fire hose of information. So it, more people are waking up to this because they're getting sloppier with how they do it but it is startling the speed at which things can be changed yeah you you should also just keep in mind that probably the people you interact with are probably people who are a little bit more plugged in Mm -hmm. Uh, most most like uh, college students or high school students if you ask them to give you any information the first thing they're going to do is pull up google they're going to google it and they're going to get it to google censored uh, list of results that filter out anything. If something says as as against the vaccine, that's going to be deranked. Uh, they're going to jump into Wikipedia, which will censor anything that's unflattering to their narrative as well. And so that's how they're going to get their information. So I, I do think that there is massive uh, popular effects on this this constant redefining, maybe more so than we might estimate based on our social circles. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I think I got uh, some examples. Oh, oh yeah, Th- this next one is interesting as well. You 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 always you always have these sentences in which uh, you pull someone's tweet out 
and then you ask, what does this word mean in this sentence? And so this kind of illustrates this redefining of words. Um, democracy, there, there, I got to pull, I don't know if I got the example of democracy, but democracy is one that's often used. Oh, the Polish people voted against democracy. And you said, yeah. what does democracy mean in this sentence? In the tweet I got pulled up, you ask, what does indigenous mean in this sentence? And Salon, a news organization, is saying the culinary traditions of mainland Europe's only indigenous people. What does indigenous mean in this sentence? So this goes along with this constant redefining. Words, words just don't have meaning in this capacity. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it, again, it's the attempt to to uh, create what, uh, again, I have a, a friend, uh, the distributist, who has a great term for this, magical words, right? We have these words, and these words are attached to a feeling or attached to a status, but they've been stripped of their actual like uh, context. They don't have any actual um, meaning to them. There's no real content to the word. The, the word is simply a, a feeling or is attached to a certain level of social status or a certain, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we know this is supposed to be good or bad, but it's been stripped of all actual uh content of the word and so we see this with uh, you know democracy all the time right the people who vote against democracy well how is that even possible right like the the very word should mean the votes of the will of the people but of course we actually know this isn't true even before this because you notice people used to do this with democracy and populism right democracy is good but populism was bad why nothing they're the same thing right it's what the people want that in theory right but in practice there's always this redefinition there's a there's the attempt to abstract the word use it for the feeling or the connection to morality that has been cultivated by the kind of the the social credit of that word and then apply it to your causes so even if the people vote for Donald Trump or Viktor Orban or someone, that's not democracy because democracy means good things. And Donald Trump and Viktor Orban are bad things, right? And so even if democracy is literally the textbook definition of what happened to select those people, they cannot be the product of democracy because democracy only produces good things. We also see this with like words like fascism, right? Like now everyone is calling everyone fascist all the time. Uh, you know, uh, every, every, Donald Trump's a fascist and Joe Biden's a fascist and, and everybody's a fascist. And the word just has no content. It's just anyone you don't like, anything you don't like, even again, democratic votes, people will be like, you know, uh, Republicans want to vote for fascists again. <laughs> what? Right. Like if you and then and then you'll have the exact opposite. It'll be like, well, well, we need to team up with corporations to stop fascism. It's like, so the state needs to team up with corporations to stop fascism. It's just there's no content to the word. The word has lost its meaning and it's only being applied emotionally or in the because it's tied to some kind of moral or uh, status in the in, in the social understanding. It doesn't actually have any content to the word. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I I sometimes post the Nazi Party platform to people and I say, hey, which of these points do you disagree with? And it's all all socialism type stuff, like old age pensions and and state interference in the market, things like that. And so that's it's like literally the Nazi platform, and they'll get mad. Uh, they don't want to interact with it. But it's it's just funny to do to people because they're not they don't have 
serious views that they, they don't have principles that you're attacking. It's it's just a magic word as as you're saying here. I remember back uh, California. I don't know if uh, you you remember this, but they voted against gay marriage, mm-hmm. and then the it went to their circuit court, the Ninth Circuit, I believe, and the Ninth Ninth Circuit struck it down. And all the headlines were, "Oh, democracy wins," and uh, "Democracy is saved by by these justices voting down popularly enacted laws." And so it's it, it is very Orwellian uh, that the, the times that we kind of live in here. So uh, one last thing, one last talking point uh, before we go. I think these are all great tools for understanding the world around us, how they work. Um, conservatives seem to be very slow on the uptick on on putting these things together. They they tend to see people as oh uh, a leftist is just someone who's not informed. If you just give them enough information, they'll come around. They'll they'll see the truth of these things. If you could just convince them with facts and logic and reason, and it really doesn't work that way in in practicality. And you don't get a lot of converts through just pure factual information exchange. And so you right here that conservatives are going to spend all day trying to grasp the mental gymnastics the left are using, but in the end, their justification is simple. And then you got a Carl Schmitt quote, and you can tell us about who Carl Schmitt was and uh, his works. But Carl Schmitt writes, the special political distinction, I'm sorry, the specific political distinction to which political actions and motives can be reduced is that between friend and enemy. And you see this all the time. So what does that mean? And who is Carl Schmidt? So Carl Schmidt is a political theorist. Uh, he obviously um, draws a lot of heat for a very understandable reason. He was a member of the National Socialist Party. And so uh, for, for many years, uh, his thought was very difficult you know, for people to take a look at. But actually, a lot of people on the left looked at a lot especially he was very his legal scholarship was something that they were particularly interested so a lot of people on the left actually ended up rehabilitating a lot of carl schmidt's work despite some of his very unsavory associations uh but another thing that carl schmidt uh, for better or for worse obviously um you know uh for the worse in in many areas but he was very good at understanding and cutting through kind of the the liberal uh, kind of myth of a lot of the way our politics works. And so one of the things that he talked about was uh, this friend-enemy distinction. You know, like you, you pointed out, a lot of conservatives believe in, much like we believe in the free market uh, and, and and everything we talked about with corporations, they also think there's a marketplace of ideas. And again, just like the free market, the assumption is that in, a, in this open exchange of ideas, you bring the best arguments and that's what compels people. They hear reasoned arguments, the, the reason arguments fight against each other and eventually the one emerges as victorious and and it's the one that gets all of the attention it's it's the victorious idea but that's actually not how politics works at all as we talked about a lot of times actually power top down kind of forces people to understand uh you know uh, the world in a particular way and so it's not so much that one idea won out in the marketplace but that one idea was pushed or 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 incentivized among the people what carl schmidt was pointing out with the friend enemy distinction was that at the end of the day a lot of us don't like to recognize that many of the things that we were told could coexist inside the marketplace of ideas and kind of our liberal democracies they don't actually they're not able to actually 
do so. Like they are actually existential threats to each other, right? For instance, either children, either parents have the right to decide like what their children should do. They have authority over their children and their upbringing and their education, or the state has a right to indoctrinate children in gender ideology and get them to like choose an alternative gender when they're eight years old. Those two things can't coexist, right? Like there has to be one or the other. And because of that, when we have those kind of distinctions in our society, you end up with the friend enemy distinction. You enter a political realm where decisions are based on more whether they align with your friendly coalition or whether they fall under the auspices of the enemy. And so while we want to believe that everyone is lining up on principle and they might be lining up on some kind of principle that might have been what generated the friend enemy distinction in the in the first place once a friend enemy distinction is created once you have an in group that can declare and out group the enemy and that those two groups can no longer exist inside the same political space then you see increasingly decisions are made along this friend enemy the line until this conflict is resolved and that's again very difficult for a lot of people on the right to understand because they're still operating under this notion that we're just kind of in debate club and if we just line up enough of arguments correctly eventually the left will be like you know what the whole time you were right how did we think this way we'll come around and we'll start doing what you're talking about yeah one thing i've noticed in my time uh, participating in debates and watching debates is typically there's a lot of tribalism going on and uh, insults and confidence wins debates more than more than uh, subdued logical reasoning, more than nuance. Uh, one example I always bring up is uh, Calvinist versus open theist debate, a totally different, it's a theological subject in which James White just declares things confidently and uh, uh, authoritatively. And John Sanders says, well, um, there's a nuanced answer to that. It could be this, it could be that, it could be this. But but the whole audience, uh, whatever side you're on, they look at James White's confidence and what he's saying and even some of his insults. And because he says it in that, that sort of way, they're siding with him. And his followers, it's, it's just like red meat to them. They go wild saying, oh, this was a slam dunk. He destroyed him. And it wasn't based on the arguments at all. It was based on the perception of what the figures were doing. Yeah, I mean, all I can think about is those debates with like the four horsemen, right? You had like the Hitchens debates or the the Dawkins debates that people would watch with with different theologians or philosophers with with kind of these new atheist guys. And so often their points were really thin and not really logically well thought out, but they, they would just mug for the crowd, right? They would do this John Stewart thing where if they didn't really have a good place or a good point, they would just kind of do this. Yeah, but you believe in like, you know, a sky fairy, you know, whatever. They would just throw something out like that. And all of a sudden they're winning the debate, right? They didn't make a more logical argument. They didn't bring their force of reason to bear on these people. They didn't you know, uh, use some kind of uh, intellectual jujitsu to, you know, reverse their position and, and win win the intellectual debate. They, they just had, you know, like that force of rhetoric. And so there's, uh, there's that to remember uh, when you're involved in these confrontations. One of the things that I do try to stress people is it's not that there's, you know, you should, of course, should be logical. You should have logical arguments available to you. It's not about abandoning reason or any of these things, but it's understanding that reason alone is not actually a very effective, persuasive rhetorical strategy. And you need to have more in your bag than just that. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. With this idea of this friend-enemy distinction, often when I'm interacting with individuals and uh, I, I, I treat individuals how they're treating me, maybe even hostily, you'll see their friends jumping in and criticizing me rather than the person who's acting exactly the same. And so that's one thing we got to realize that is when people are making demands of us that, oh, you should act like this, oh, you should apologize, you should um, grovel in front of so-and-so, a lot of times this friend-enemy distinction is actually kicking off and they are not t attacking you based on a principled basis, but they're just trying to use uh, humiliation and shame as a tool to control you while not uh, not forcing the same standards on people on their side. And so it's a, it's a way to silence debate. It's a way to make uh, make your points not actually take effect because you're so busy dealing with this humiliation ritual. And I, have you ever read Vox Day's uh, Social Justice Warriors Always Lie? Yes, I have. Yeah, so that that's one of his things that he says is never apologize to these people. It's not sincere. It's not going to get anywhere. You're wasting your time by interacting with these people who who just demand that you grovel at their feet. Yeah, again, it's one of those things you should be you should do your best to be more impressive than these people, right? There there is value in being intellectually prepared and and having good arguments and also just the way you carry yourself and the way you act but that doesn't mean groveling to people who do not have your interest or the interest of those around you at heart right you can be someone who is more impressive and 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 is someone who more people are going to want to emulate by you know addressing people in a way that that makes it clear that you are not going to stoop to their level, but you're also not going to be bullied by them. You're not going to be morally blackmailed by them. So I think there's a balance. Like it doesn't mean just become awful to people, right. Or just, or just act in a, in an unchristian way or something like that. But it does. But what it does mean is don't be pulled into the mud by people who don't have any, any of your interests at heart, who aren't sincerely seeking the truth, who aren't sincerely looking to rise, arrive at some kind of consensus or understanding with you they are purely mercenary and when you understand at some point that someone is purely mercenary then you you have you kind of lose that duty to try to convince that person that doesn't mean that you can't use your behavior or your manner in that situation to then press upon others the fact that you have a position that is better but you don't owe anything to that person who is clearly not interested in actually conversing and actually being convinced or 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 into engaging with you in an intellectually honest way. And so the, uh, Twitter is a, a platform for grandstanding and this mercenary action that you talk about. So what's your Twitter strategy uh, personally for interacting with others on Twitter? Uh, I rarely do, actually. That That's kind of the thing is I really don't, I don't get in other people's mentions. I don't get into drama with people. If someone tries to start something with me, I generally just ignore them. Like I said, Twitter is not really a place for real interactive debate. It simply cannot, you can't get into those cordial disagreements. I, I will on occasion with someone who I know and I've talked to multiple times and I built up some trust and interaction. I feel confident enough with our rapport to like go in and say, okay, let's talk about something. But for random people who I don't know and I have no connection to, I just generally don't respond much to them unless I have, you know, some, some unless I have a point to make off how they are behaving 
or the kind of argument they have framed, I don't go and then try to like argue specifically with that person. If they have real interest in an interaction and there have been those, for instance, I, I uh, had a discussion with Glenn Greenwald after we disagreed, after I quote tweeted him, but I knew that we had interacted a number of times and that Glenn, while we might disagree on a, a large number of inter, in, uh, in issues is someone who is generally interested in discussion and honest debate. And so I said, well, then let's take this to my YouTube channel. And then we had a great discussion there. So if I really want to have an in-depth disagreement with someone who I think we're actually going to make some kind of interesting dialogue with, I take them to a format where that is actually possible, not a couple hundred characters. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is what makes your Twitter account extremely valuable. If it's anyone's not following you on Twitter, they definitely can. And I, I definitely will put links to all your web pages and your Twitter and stuff uh, in the show notes here. But uh, it makes you incredibly valuable because you're you would astutely observe the behaviors of others and comment on underlying motivations or underlying principles rather than like this petty back and forth dialogue. And uh, your YouTube videos are also pretty good like this in which you're discussing just how the world works and uh, ways in which to view the world. And I think it's extremely helpful for framing the world around us, the title of our, our podcast tonight, Understanding How the World Works and Operates. And so we're, we're at about the hour mark, and so I probably shouldn't take up too much of your time. Um, but uh, do you have any thoughts or ideas or any more comments you'd like to make on any specific point that we've talked about tonight? No, man. I think we hit uh, a lot of interesting stuff. I really appreciate you having me on. It was good to kind of get to you know take a step back and talk about these different strategies because I, I, like you said, do get stuck into a lot of issues. But uh, but it was nice to kind of step back and get to look at kind of the wider picture with framing and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled that you came on. It was a long shot. I was like, maybe this guy will come on. I don't know. It'll be good. And so uh, thrilled to have you on. I think it's uh, been very valuable. And I think there's been a lot of lessons for our listeners tonight. So with that, if anyone has any questions or comments, uh, put that down below on the YouTube channel or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.